libmp 3 lame Good evening, everyone, and a very warm welcome. I'm your host tonight. Uh, my name is Don't Molly Rowan us. Leach of Molly Rowan Presents. And tonight lame. is the kickoff of a very special free and weekly fall and winter series that I'm hosting on social healing and restorative justice. This series brings to you a wide array of speakers wanting to share and dialogue on the very important fields of social healing and restorative justice. My mission and vision for this series was to put something into motion that would open a field of discussion that doesn't seem to be fully developed in our society, at least in the greater public conversation, it seems. And so this, this dialogue space here together, this circle that we have, is a neutral and safe ground, I, I'm hoping that we, we know that up front, to cover the full spectrum of thoughts and opinions in these fields, while we also learn, connect, gain resources, and have fruitful dialogue. Tonight's format and formats for these these ongoing weekly calls, um, forums, uh, just a few words. We will hear from our incredible guest speaker tonight first, and then she and I will go into a short dialogue, and then we will open it up into the circle and to the forum and the question and answers and comments. And I know um, I was really amazed at the, the comments and the questions that came in previous to tonight's call. And so I'm hoping that many of you have those questions with you <clears throat> and are ready um, so that it, we'll do our best to get to you during that portion of the evening, which will be about um, at a quarter of the hour, we'll probably start approximately into the forum portion. This call goes for an hour and 15 minutes. And um, also, for those of you who are not aware of how Maestro-based forums work, you simply are invited to press a key. I'll prompt you um, to press a key on your keypad <coughs> when our open forum commences. And that signals me that you have a question or comment and would like to um, put your voice into the circle. So anyway, it's wonderful to have you all here tonight for this very important discussion and sharing. And without further ado, I am I'm just deeply, deeply honored to have with us tonight a very incredible voice on the front lines and cutting edge of restorative justice, the amazing Robin Kasargian. She has devoted most of her life to restorative justice and change within the criminal justice system and beyond. She's the founder and director of the Lionheart Foundation and its National Emotional Literacy Projects. And she is an educator, public speaker, writer, and consultant. She's also developed and implemented programming uh, for prisoners and youth at risk and draws from her experience as director of a school for at-risk adolescents, as well as extensive experience in education, stress management training, psychotherapy and administration. She is an author and she's written a, a couple incredible books. Um, one is titled Forgiveness, A Bold Choice for a Peaceful Heart and that's published by Bantam 1992 and then also the um, incredible Houses of Healing, 
A Prisoner's Guide to Inner Power and Freedom, published in 1995 by the Lionheart Press. She also co-authored with Beth, Bethany Kasargian, um, Taking Charge of Your Life. And so I just extend such deep honor and thanks to you, Robin, for being here with us tonight and would just like to warmly welcome you again to this dialogue and community forum. Robin, to you're live. <laughs> okay, there thank you, you so much, Molly. I'm absolutely delighted and honored to have this opportunity uh, to um, share with all of you and to engage with your questions and your comments. And um, as Molly framed it, um, we're going to look at um, the the issue of restorative justice, and I'd like to just address that for a few minutes and then tell you a little bit about my work and respond to one of the questions that restorative justice asks. Um, Kay Pranis, who is a, a leader in the field of restorative justice, she ran the Minnesota Department of Corrections Restorative Justice Program for a number of years suggests that restorative justice asks a number of questions. Um, among them are how can we increase the opportunity for victim involvement in defining harm and potential repair, to really look at the harm done and to um, set up a system of meaningful dialogue and reparation, um, how can we increase offender awareness of injury to the victim? Uh, how can we encourage offender acknowledgement of uh, their behavior? And there are a number of questions, but I'm going to jump to the one that I really want to look at tonight uh, and the one that I feel I can respond to uh, most effectively because it draws on my own experience, which is how can we ensure that the offender leaves the system, meaning the prison system in this case usually, um, or the court system, more competent to function effectively in the community. Um, so again, I, I just want to welcome all of you. Thank you. Thank Molly for all the work that it takes to organize one of these and her uh, very gracious introduction. And um, what I'm going to talk about uh, tonight um, to start off with is a little bit about how I got involved in prison work and what brought me to this, and then about the, um, the curriculum that I've developed to use within the context of the prison system, and that's been used by um, many thousands of prisoners in prisons through in jails throughout the United States. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit about the history. And in 1988, um, I was giving a public talk on the topic of forgiveness. As Molly mentioned, I wrote a book on the topic, and it was a topic that I had given a lot of thought to and had great interest in. And a woman came up to me after the talk, and she said, I teach a course on addiction recovery in one of the medium security prisons 
in Massachusetts and what you're saying would be so relevant for the men to hear. Because, of course, when you're talking about forgiveness, you're also talking about issues of anger and resentment and guilt. And um, I had never been in a prison before. I never thought about going into a prison. But the invitation intrigued me. In fact, I was actually very excited about the prospect because as I talk about and teach forgiveness, I think of it as not only something to do in its obvious application of when you're angry, resentful, or guilty, uh, but as a larger relationship with life where you can, as Dr. Jerry Jampolsky, who's written a lot on forgiveness, says, see the light instead of the lampshade in people. And I thought, wow, what more wonderful place to go in and see the light instead of the lampshade than in a prison, a place where people are so consistently seen through the filter of a two-dimensional crime and crime history construct. And um, so I went in, and there were eight men in the group, and I really enjoyed the experience, and I figured it was the beginning and end of my prison teaching career. And she said, would you do just one more talk out at another medium security prison? She said, I'm not going to be able to be there, but I'll introduce you to the psychologist who will be your liaison, because there's a prisoner I know out there who tries to get outside speakers to come in. And I spoke with the psychologist, and he said, I don't know whether you'll get more than two, three, four people, men, in this group because it's not part of an ongoing class. But I'll put a couple of flyers around. So I very reluctantly drove to the prison, having to get up very early. It was quite a distance from my home. And um, thinking, oh, nobody's going to be there. Why did I get up this morning? And when I arrived at 9 o'clock in the morning, there were 120 men waiting in the room for me to begin. And it was an amazing morning. People listened intently. They asked great questions. Many of them stayed after to engage, um, asking additional questions. And the psychologist said, gee, would you come and teach a course, not just give this talk? And um, I said I would. And... We limited the class to 16 people. It was going to be, I think, about a 14-session course, which came to be known as Emotional Awareness, Emotional Healing. Never really loved the name, but he gave it that name, and it kind of stuck. And um, I would say the second week of the course, I just said, this is a calling for me. I absolutely loved it, where I had been teaching in the corporate setting, the healthcare setting, teaching stress management, teaching workshops on various topics, um, there was something that spoke so deeply to me. And really it was the ultimate teaching experience it, because you put a lot out, but so much came back. There was really a very meaningful exchange where, say, in the corporate setting, it was like I was putting a lot out and it was almost like it was going into a, uh, it felt like into a black hole sometimes because people were so reluctant to reveal themselves in that setting. So I taught for about four years, um, really enjoyed it, and volunteered, and thought, well, this clearly this is making a difference, but I'm not reaching many people. Maybe there's another book to be written to try to bring the spirit and the content of this work to prisoners across the United States. And to make a long story short, um, I... Um, 
And I also knew that if I was going to write a book, that I had to have a way to give it away for free, that I couldn't wait for some warden or librarian to buy one copy, but I had to have a way to get it out there to many prisoners. So a friend suggested that I start a nonprofit foundation to see if I could raise the funds to do that. And um, I started the Lionheart Foundation, raised the money, and today there are about 100,000 copies of the book in circulation. And uh, it's in all 50 states. It's really changed the nature of programming in, in many prisons and has uh, made a big difference. And about 80% um, of our resources are donated to prison libraries, prison programs, and, and to individual prisoners nationwide. It's in English and Spanish. And, um, so we do these strategic free national distribution efforts to get our work out there, whether it's with prisoners or, as we've expanded, with highly at-risk adolescents and teen parents. Uh, the program came to be known as the National Emotional Literacy Project for Prisoners. And even if you don't know that term, you haven't really utilized the term emotional literacy, I'm sure that you all intuitively uh, would know what it is, which is uh, the ability to read and our own feelings. So when people's emotional literacy is increased, that you know they have heightened self-awareness and self-understanding, greater options for dealing with stress and tension, greater impulse control, and uh, greater social skills, and greater motivation and persistence and optimism in the face of setbacks, which is so critical for the, this population because if there's one thing they're all sure to face when they get out of prison, it is a number of setbacks because we've, we've developed a, a way of relating to people who have done time in prison in this country that uh, just creates one barrier after uh, the other, as you know. Uh, the great news is that emotional literacy skills can be learned at any time in life. And that's what the uh, curriculum, the book came to be known as, the title of it is called Houses of Healing, A Prisoner's Guide to Inner Power and Freedom. And I'd like to just back up for a moment and say a few words about the prison population. For those of you who may not be aware, um, Currently, almost one out of every 100 adults in the United States is incarcerated. It's such a stunning statistic. You know, I, I sometimes talk to, I often talk to people about uh, the prison system and statistics, and I remember I was speaking to a group of people one night after I had given this statistic so many times, and it, there was such a cognitive dissonance for me that, no, it couldn't possibly be one out of every 100 adults. I, I had to go home and look it up again, even after I had spoken it so many times, because it was so unbelievable to me that we could incarcerate that many people. And um, 31 adults, uh, one in every 31 adults are in prison, jail, or on probation or parole. We spend about $74 billion a year to incarcerate people, even as we, as you know, cutting uh, budgets for schools and all kinds of social services. And sadly, about 67% of the people who are released are rearrested within three years. 
so it really speaks to a profoundly failed system. Um, there, I think of the prison population as being on a bell curve. At one end of the bell curve, you have um, people that no matter how negative the experience, they'll use prison as a wake-up call uh, and really try to get their lives together and won't come back to prison. Then at the other end of the spectrum are people that no matter what kind of resources you give them, um, they may not be able to utilize them in a good way and they're not open to it. And sadly, a growing number at that end of the spectrum are the severely mentally ill that go into the prison system. We have four times as many people in this country that are in uh, mentally ill in prisons than we do in mental uh, hospitals where they can really get meaningful treatment. And prisons are becoming the largest geriatric wards in the world. And clearly, this is really an unsustainable trend. So the way I think about it and is that doing time really doesn't have to be a waste of time. And that's what I saw from my own experience in prison, in, in teaching and volunteering and seeing the changes that people um, were able to um, experience while in there. I love the way the sheriff, uh, Michael Wade from Virginia, articulated it. He said, incarceration is too precious an intervention opportunity to waste. So the, the mission of the Lionheart Foundation is to increase the social and emotional competence of at-risk youth and incarcerated adults significantly enough to alter their life course, to alter their life course. So what I'd like to do is share with you some of the elements that I think make the difference in, again, this question that restorative justice asks of how can we assure that people that are locked up in this country, and there are so many of them, leave the system more competent to function effectively in the community. So I'd like to just share with you uh, some of the table of contents from Houses of Healing and make a few, um, uh, some of the topics and then make a few comments about them. Um, it begins with just the, the idea of doing time and again, that idea of doing time doesn't have to be a waste of time and using it constructively. And then the question, which is really at the crux of the curriculum and the intervention, which is, who are you really? And I think that um, there was a, 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 a young man that I worked with um, in the prison who I think really spoke to this issue in a beautiful way. And he said when he was speaking, uh, addressing this issue, he said, when I take an honest look into myself, I see all the hurt, the denial, the dishonesty, the manipulation, the numbing, the fear, and all the feelings of inadequacy. I also see a love 
an unconditional love, an awareness of my true self, of gentleness and kindness and patience, and these new feelings are bringing light to the darker side of me, exposing them so that I can find the door to my heart. And one of the things that the, the, this idea of who are you really, there's a very explicit teaching that, and it's probably very familiar to a lot of people that are, that are listening right now, that within everyone is a core, is an essence, is a center, is a core of, of awareness, of love, of insight and wisdom and compassion, this core self, and that around that, the ego, the personality develops and identifications into roles and beliefs and emotions, and that many times we get stuck out in those emotions, roles, beliefs, and, get, and there's a barrier to that experience of our core self. I love the way uh, this Reverend Wayne Muller articulated this idea of the core self. And he says, what if there is something deeper, something whole and strong, resilient and unbreakable, something untouched, untainted, even by the most horrific experiences in this lifetime? What if there is a light that shines through even the most penetrating darkness. And everything really in this process of restoration is geared to helping people align with their core self. And we'll talk about, I'll talk about how, what are some of the things that can help them do that. Nice to know that the core self exists intellectually, but that's not going to be helpful when the going gets rough. It's about how do you energetically align with the core self. It's just, it is that process of healing is what, we're, is what the, the aim of this is. Again, how do you function more effectively in the community? How does anybody function effectively in the community? And the more healed we are, the more whole we are, obviously, the more effectively that we can function in the community, in the world, in our life, in our relationships. There was a very interesting study done by a criminologist, Shad Maruna. It's called the Liverpool Desistance Study. And he did a narrative study. He interviewed two groups of people equally matched, that had done time behind bars. One group was actively desisting from crime, not participating, and consciously choosing not to participate in criminal activity. The other group, equally matched, was still living a life of crime on the outside. And he said, what is the story? What is the narrative of these people that separates them. Is there something different in the desisters from the people who are still living a, a life of crime on the outside? And um, he said it can be, in, in kind of a conclusion to his study, he said, well, first of all, he says the premise, the premise of the study is um, 
Well, actually, I'll back up there and say that it, he said it can be argued here that sustained assistance most likely requires a fundamental and intentional shift in a person's sense of self. In other words, I think that, the, I think that a young woman who we worked with in our youth program put it perfectly, somebody who had been in the Division of Youth Services and had been yeah, involved in a lot of criminal activity, and we were talking about the issue of peer pressure, which of course is a big issue, particularly with teens. And she said how her friends would get her to do the things that she had done before. And she said, that ain't me no more. It was like she had changed significantly enough, fundamentally enough, that making the choices that led down the, the wrong road for her were no longer an option, not because she didn't want to go back into the, the, the criminal uh, justice system, but because it wasn't her anymore. Her, her sense of self had fundamentally shifted so significantly that it was no longer an option for her uh, to, to make those kinds of choices. So the work of uh, you know, aligning with the core self is, uh, is, is really that work of uh, knowing yourself and experiencing your fundamental dignity um, so directly that those choices aren't choices that you want to or you care to make any longer. So, um, so exploring that issue and giving people the tools to energetically align with it. Meditation, mindfulness meditation is a very core part of the, um, the intervention. And perhaps I'll return to that and say a few more words later. But the second chapter of the book, although we do this later in the course if it's in the context of an actual program in a prison, is called The Long and Winding Road from Childhood to Prison. As I say, how is it that you come into the world, this beautiful divine child, and you end up a drug addict, you end up in a life of crime? What is it that happens along the road uh, that, um, that has you take that particular path. And this really has to do with acknowledging and working and working with and healing childhood trauma. This is a piece of the puzzle that for so many of the men and women that I've worked with and that participate in the Houses of Healing program in prisons across the United States, that is like a piece of the puzzle that's been missing for them that gets put in place. Um, in order to break the cycle of abuse and violence, this childhood trauma and the personal wounding that fuels violence and criminal acts really needs to be addressed. And um, so to this end, they're provided with an opportunity to recognize it, become aware of its impact, uh, in adulthood and participating in healing some of the unresolved emotional pain. And inner child work, kind of a la John Bradshaw, is a focus of this aspect of the program. 
Uh, as we all know very often, the victim becomes the victimizer, the abuse becomes the abuser. And so we say, if you have victimized other people, the part of your healing begins with addressing your own victimization and your own abuse. And we really try to, through the writing in the book, through the process of a class, create a safe context for people to begin to look at those really difficult issues because so many of them for self-protection had to obviously you know, numb out on their own pain and grief. And it's no small thing to bring those, those feelings up so that they are not only you know, numb to their own feelings, then they become numb to others and lack the empathy and compassion, which is critical to the healing process and being able to really take responsibility for um, their offending behavior. There was a book I read many years ago by um, a young man. It was called Tying Rocks to Clouds, Conversations with Wise and Spiritual People. He had gone around the world to interview well, people the likes of, say, Mother Teresa, Dalai Lama, and others, uh, other people that he considered wise and spiritual. And there was a sentence that he wrote in his introduction that really jumped out at me. And he said, I could look at the worst in myself knowing the best. I could look at the worst in myself knowing the best as people begin to align with that fundamental dignity and, and, um, and strength and courage and the fundamental goodness of their own intrinsic nature, then they don't have to live in a defensive mode and they can begin to open up to, uh, to look and really acknowledge uh, the damage that's been left uh, as a result oftentimes of their behavior. Then we look at issues of anger and resentment and, and grief, what I call grief, the silenced emotion, huge grief in this population. Um, they're taught a lot of techniques, uh, emotional regulation techniques, as I mentioned. Um, uh, meditation is really core. I, when it's taught in a course, I don't touch it until the end, towards the towards uh, quite a ways into the book and just reading the book because if people read that at the beginning, m most of them would be like, you know, what is this? And put the book down. But in, in looking at, um, so I address it later. I try to pull them into the book sufficiently so that when they get to meditation, they, they're willing to be open to it. And then... Um, chapters on reframing and relaxation um, and uh, a technique that I call, a perspective that I call forgiving on neutral territory. Um, as, again, as Jerry Jampolsky puts it, it's seeing the light instead of the lampshade, encouraging them to participate and seeing the fundamental goodness in others people that they don't have an emotional charge with as a means of beginning to mirror back to themselves that fundamental goodness in themselves. And then um, we, the, the, the uh, curriculum addresses the issue, and I'd like to say a few words about this and then, and then in, a, in a little bit open it up. Molly's going to ask some questions and then to all of you. But it's the issue of self-forgiveness. 
And so often, as I write in, in Houses of Healing, the idea of a prisoner forgiving him or herself is as unacceptable to many as the commission of the crime. It's like, how could they forgive themselves? And, but I suggest that self-forgiveness is the only sure deterrent to crime. And I address self-forgiveness as a, a multi-pronged process. But by the time they get to that chapter, they've already worked on many of those steps. One being aligning with your core self and affirming your fundamental goodness. Uh, participating in, in, in things that really help you um, to grow emotionally. Uh, whether it be, you know, if you're an addict, being an AA or NA, working with a counselor, uh, associating with people around you that are really trying to change their life and staying away from people for in this fragile period of beginning the process of, you know, people that are really uh, wasting their time and into a negative track, although hopefully really opening to those people later on and certainly becoming a role model for them, doing the inner child work um, and beginning to heal emotional wounds and, um, and that process of doing that work leads to, say, the first step of self-forgiveness, which is acknowledging the truth, the truth of what you have done and its impact on people. And as I often, whenever I talk about forgiveness or self-forgiveness, I always start by saying what it isn't, that it's not excusing your behavior. It's not diminishing it. It's not saying, oh, I forgive me myself because God forgives me when I haven't really done the soul searching and the deep looking that really needs to be done and the healing that needs to be done in order to, uh, to really open up to that possibility of um, self-forgiveness. Um, and self-forgiveness is, um, is there was a, a definition of love, and I'll share this with you because I thought it was so beautiful that a colleague of mine once, once um, articulated, and I really realized how love and self-forgiveness really are very much the same thing. And she said, love is no more and no less than the simple, honest, and natural expression of our own wholeness, our full self-acceptance, but that until we could accept all of who we are without judgment, our seeming shortcomings, our fears, our idiosyncrasies, our mistakes, our whatever, as well as our innate glory, until we could accept all of who we are, our dark side as well as our light, that innate glory, then love waits patiently behind the fragile illusions of romance or is mistaken as a medium of barter and exchange or is felt like the object of an addiction and is experienced as a constant need. She's saying love is who we are and it's opening up to that full spectrum. And self-forgiveness really is that same thing of opening up to 
really, again, I go back to Victor right at the beginning of when I started speaking of acknowledging the numbing and, and the manipulation and the hurt one has caused and really looking honestly. And we go through a whole process of helping people to acknowledge uh, that truth and, um, and doing that from that place in ourselves where we can begin to have the, where we have the courage and the strength to look at that side of ourselves. So, and I look at the distinction between violent crime and nonviolent crime and how most nonviolent crimes are absolutely violent if you're telling the truth about them. Like I think of a, I often give the example of a family friend whose house was broken into and for a 72-year-old woman, nothing, almost nothing was taken, but for months she had to walk around malls every afternoon terrified to be in her own home when her husband was at work. And I say, is that not of, uh, is that, does that have no violence in it, the psychic violence done to people? As I say, we have to get down and dirty about what we've done and the impact of what we've done. And, and, um, but at the same time, to do it as not as a way to beat ourselves up, but as a learning experience. To acknowledge the truth, to make amends, to apologize in, in any way that we can do that that's, that it, it is, you know, has integrity to it and that, it's, um, that, that is possible. Many times people that are in the criminal justice system can't apologize directly to people. Um, even the whole issue of, of drug abuse, a lot of people, I just, la just last week I was in a federal prison in Michigan uh, speaking to the, uh, to the issue with 100 inmates of taking responsibility for offending behavior. And a lot of people who are in for drug abuse would say, you know, oh, you know, I'm just dealing drugs. It's a nonviolent crime. And, I, and looking at the impact of them, you know, it, it, of that. I mean, just to start with, if they have families that, you know, do they, that it, it has a tremendous impact on their families and certainly on their children because a huge percentage of people who, who are um, in prison the likelihood of their children going to prison is enormous. And um, so there's really a generational legacy that goes along with that. Um, so, and then there's a chapter in the book called F Spiritual Awakening, Finding the Faith that Sustains You. And it's a very ecumenical approach, but encourages people to, um, to open to their own spirituality, whatever path that may be, and then ends up with the thought, wherever you go, there you are. Um, that, that, that really I, I reinforce, uh, certainly at the end of the course or at the end of the book, that this is only the beginning of a process that I consider a lifelong process. I certainly consider that for myself, that you know, I can't imagine a time in my life where I won't personally feel uh, the the need to meditate as a way for me to stay on track and l live from the best in myself and and to reinforce that on a daily basis, which I certainly find a need for. So that is an overview um, of the the program, and because I certainly find that when someone values themselves, that they will value other people, and I can't think of. Uh, anything more effective for public safety 
And, you know, there are so many directions to address this whole issue of restorative justice. And, and, uh, but, again, what I offer you tonight, and I'm going to hand this over to Molly in just a minute, is sharing with you um, the, the realm in which I have the most direct experience um, and, um, and <clears throat> over the years, um, the, the many people started coming to us and saying, "Wow, we really need a youth uh, version of this um, of this curriculum." In fact, uh, the California Youth Authority had purchased a couple of hundred copies of Houses of Healing, and I thought, "Wow, this book was definitely not written for adolescents, but clearly they're." They aren't finding out there what they want. They're finding something here. So I joined forces with my niece, Bethany Kasarjan, who, as I often say to people, had I done a 10-year national search, I couldn't have found a more competent person who has a Ph.D. in, in uh, psychology in, from Columbia University, but most importantly has a passion for working with highly at-risk adolescents, and that was her focus um, in the Bronx and in New York when we, we joined forces. And then we saw so many of these highly emotionally dysregulated 15, 16, 17-year-olds who already had children of their own. And we thought, wow, maybe we can do something truly prevented, uh, a primary prevention tool, um, not, uh, and, and, and um, if we could work with the young parents, and particularly young mothers, um, because they tend to be the primary caretakers of the children, maybe we could affect the next uh, generation. And our goal, the Lionheart goal, really is to, um, is to break into generational cycles of violence, addiction, incarceration, and ineffective and hurtful parenting by the expansion of our programs uh, but our very primary goal, most importantly, is just to help people to live productive, meaningful lives. And hopefully and, and undoubtedly, if they do that, it will ripple into their families and to their employers, to their communities, uh, to the society at large. So I think that's all I'm going to say so that we can move on and make it a larger uh, um, conversation and thank you I know that it's quite an earful and uh, could go mm -hmm. on for hours but I'm going to stop there and um, I just thank you so much for uh, giving me this forum and letting me share about this work with you mm, so Molly you. if you want to jump in thank you Robin and um, everyone can hear me I'm assuming yes back on the mic <clears throat> can you hear me I can hear you. I okay, great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I just I just felt a, a, a kind of a a sense that perhaps before we go into this next segment, we might want to um, open up for maybe a few brief comments or questions with the the group. Sure. Um, so if you if if you feel like you have something you'd like to share or ask Robin, um, please press one on your keypad. Maybe take a, a few questions right now. Yeah. Sure. 
Okay, and you know what? It looks like uh, the group is drinking it in. So um, why don't I go ahead and jump in on one of the questions that I have for you tonight, Robin. Okay, and, sure. And we'll, we'll see what evolves with with the circle. So um, one of the things that, that really is compelling to me about Houses of Healing um, although I don't have an expansive knowledge of the library or body of work in restorative justice like you do, it, it appears to me from a layperson's perspective that this book provides um, a very unique toolkit for for those incarcerated. And, and you've, you've just um, basically answered to a lot of the primary foundations and tools that this book offers. And I, I, w I just wanted to also say, too, that if, if anybody um, would like more information on the Lionheart Foundation's work and the many resources and offerings that are happening, please go to lionheart.org. That's www.lionheart.org. You can also order Houses of Healing at, at that website. Um, so, so basically, Robin, uh, moving into one of the, the questions that really is compelling to me would be um, if, if you'd be interested in sharing a brief story uh, from your experiences in the field that, that might give you hope or, or inspiration um, that perhaps gives you kind of a sense of, of the power of restorative justice in action, mm -hmm. even though we... We we don't necessarily see it in the collective conversation as much as as um, certainly it is prevalent in your world and in many people's worlds that are focusing in this in this field. Um, do you have any particular places that you'd like to share that 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 have have shown you the, the you know the light instead of the lampshade in in this field, even amidst um, some of the the systems and the experiences that um, these you know, the the experience of a system that is is in the throes of what appears to be a profit based um, motivation. Um, well, you know, I, I, almost every day we receive letters from prisoners, and the. The stories are individual stories of people's personal transformation. And you know, I think of somebody, actually, there's so many stories uh, of people whose lives have changed. And you know, there's an expression that I use in Houses of Healing that we cannot choose what we do not yet know exists. And for so many um, of the men and women that I work with, and the boy, the boys and girls, the younger um, uh, people that we work with, they only need to be shown a different way and treated with dignity. And then it's like the light bulb comes on. I think of a young man. Actually, he's. If you go to the page uh, that says what prisoners have to say about Houses of Healing. And there's actually a video of him on there. And he said, a friend of his came up to him and said, what do you want to do? 
do you want to go home and, and be there for your son, or do you want to spend the rest of your life in prison? And he said he didn't even know how to answer that question. And then his friend encouraged him to come to a Houses of Healing course. And he came, and, you know, the long and short of it is he really took to it, and um, it totally changed his life. He started participating in programs and really dealing with a lot of uh, anger and emotional woundedness, and he got out and he became just really successful and married a, a wonderful woman and was there for his son and there for his stepson. But what was amazing to me is that this young man, or then by then, I guess in his late 30s, he had, I, I just asked the question, what the heck were you doing for the last 12 years in prison? You know, what is it about our system that you can go in there and just vegetate for year after year after year rather than be here here he's taken a course that's offered by volunteers the system isn't even offering it per se I mean they're allowing it to happen and they're in Massachusetts they're encouraging it to happen which is true in other places as well but the kind of deep transformation that can happen um, as a result of, of participating there's a couple of wonderful videos on on the um, the website, which again I think are just exemplative of what happens for many, 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 many prisoners. And uh, I have a letter right in front of me uh, of, from a 16-year-old. I'll just quickly read it. As a, and, and, and I think this this is a letter of transformation and uh, a story of transformation, but it's out of their own words. So I'll just uh, again unsolicited letter from a 16-year-old. Um, my name is Marty Ortiz. We actually changed the names to uh, keep the identification private. But he says, I'm 16 years old and from Texas, born and raised. Well, I just finished reading y'all's book, Power Source. Ever since I was seven, my family used to abuse me. My mother left me and my seven-year-old brothers and sisters to my dad to raise on his own. My father was an alcoholic. I started getting into trouble at age seven, started selling coke, weed, and brew at age 12. I committed many crimes, became an alcoholic, dope fiend, hanging out with the quote-unquote cool people, joined a gang at age 13. I was shot at, stabbed five times, and did so many crazy things. I became suicidal, thinking no one loved me and would worry if I lived or died. So I tried many times to take my life, but failed at it. 2005, I was arrested for armed robbery. Now I'm doing time in the Texas Youth Commission. I've tried several times to take my life, but my bunkmate gave me a book one month ago, and I've read it all as of today. It's been exactly 20 days since the last day I tried suicide. I've realized that there's more people who need help, and that's what I'm going to do, help the people who need help. Thanks to y'all's book. Trust me and inspired me and made me realize that, quote, in each moment I can choose to use the power and wisdom within me, quote. That's a quote from the book. It's helped me more than you'll, you, can, you all can ever imagine. With much love and appreciation, Marty Ortiz. P.S. I forgot to tell you that I'm a father of one beautiful baby girl. So I think the, the, his own words speak... Uh, speak volumes. Wow. 
Mm. Thank you, Robin. You're welcome. Powerful. <laughs> um, I just would like to to again take a uh, just a, a little moment here to see if anyone would like to comment or quest, any questions. Pressing one on your keypad. Um, and while uh, sometimes it takes a moment for that to to come mm-hmm. up on the screen with our internet transmission here, so um, Robin, I would just like to, you know, with the idea that if you have a comment or a question, you just press one. Um, I'd like to talk for a moment with you and the the circle about uh, from the web leading up to this dialogue and forum tonight. Many people had preemptive questions and comments, and there was a lot of enthusiasm um, and curiosity. And one of the primary um, and recurring questions that came up was, how do I get involved uh, more deeply in this movement? How do mm-hmm. I plug in? And what, you know, what can I do to help, it, help move restorative justice forward, especially, of course, mm. in the United States? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, restorative justice isn't a huge movement. It's a growing movement, but there are pockets of it. And I think the best way, one way to do it is to look in, uh, is maybe to Google restorative justice in their state uh, to see what actually is happening within uh, the geographical, if there's anything happening in the geographical area in which they live. Um, and uh, as far as something like facilitating a Houses of Healing program or using Houses of Healing as a, as a launching pad or power source, the book for adolescents, um, the best way to do that is, first of all, to read the books, to, to, you know, just to make sure that one is, if you're interested, is, is really deeply resonant with it. And then to reach out to, to prisons, to jails, to youth programs. It's, it's often as a volunteer, it's much easier to actually to get into a prison than youth programs. They're very um, much more uh, reticent to open their doors up to uh, community people unless they uh, really have a background that um, they feel like the the youth that they can really work with this material uh, in a way that will be um, safe and effective for the youth. With prisoners, um, <clears throat> you know, there's much more of an openness to that. And what what these programs do is they give you a ready-made curriculum that's been extremely well received. People can read on the website uh, the extent to which it is well received. And I didn't mention, but our Teen Parenting Program just received an NIH grant to, um, to an exploratory grant. We've been working with a, a, a major exploratory grant from NIH with our Power Source Program that was done on the adolescent unit in Rikers Island. Um, so our goal, one of our goals, is to get our programs evidence-based because that's so important for wide acceptability within um, you know, within the systems. So you have, an, you have a program that you can take and say, you know, this is, this is the, 
the background on it, which they're research-driven approaches to behavior change. They're not just something we've pulled out of the air. So a lot mm -hmm. of times programs are very receptive to it. I've also noticed that um, in the United States there are only a, really a handful of, uh, for example, higher education training programs within the realm of, of restorative justice and peace building. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you have any recommendations for people that might be looking into um, you know, that as a, as a track of study? Of um, no, I think you're absolutely right that there are uh, very, you know, it's, it's something that's been embraced in particular universities, um, University of Minnesota, and there, there, there are pockets of it in terms of its study and uh, pockets of training programs. So I, I'm not on top of where all of those are, but again, I think, you know, just... Uh, Googling um, restorative justice, uh, if they really want to go into a university program, or just restorative justice programs and see what they can come up with, because mm -hmm. I'm not aware of exactly where all of them are. Well, and it appears as we um, as we've come over the you know the past um, century and beyond of of how we what what the, the the dominant paradigm is um it appears that the, the this wave is just now currently rising and in in looking i mean the the wave i mean of course you've devoted uh, what appears to be most of your adult life to restorative justice and and many of the the related fields here and so you're on the on the leading edge the cutting edge and um it appears that there's at this moment, an opportunity to look really closely at, at the underbelly of um, perhaps why it is that there, that it, you know, what the what the shadow side has offered us in this moment, um, the you know the the critics perhaps of restorative justice of 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 when we look at at other systems embodying. Um, practices that that actually see the light instead of the lampshade are criticized as as being soft or um, just not workable or um, perhaps too expensive. You know, sometimes it just comes down to a budget item, a line item. And I'm I'm just curious, Robin, what you think about um, if, if you have any comments or would like to just say a few words about. Why critics of restorative justice? Um, what is that about? What what's? Why is it that people seem to think that this this isn't a viable track for transformation and for restoration? Well, I think the bottom line to that question would really be ignorance and fear. Mm. I mean, when people um, and I think that we tend to have a very punitive mentality, uh, really a retributive rather than restorative um, mentality in, in this country. I was speaking to a friend of mine actually this morning who's doing incredible work um, in the prisons. Actually, I think he, run, he um, has developed one of the most 
the most, not one of the most, the most interesting and and uh, restorative types of programs that I have ever seen. And he runs something called the Center for Therapeutic Justice. And people can Google that if they're interested, the Center for Therapeutic Justice. And basically, there um, he develops communities, a therapeutic community within prisons uh, that are basically run by the inmates. There's not a hierarchy, and it's... A, and although, if you go on his website, you can see an incredible video uh, that's been put together and see the amazing statistics, um, how there's no violence in these, in these therapeutic communities, how the recidivism rate is like so dramatically lower than people coming out of the general population. And it really inspires responsibility, taking responsibility among the inmates. But it's almost impossible, not impossible, because they are, they are, they are happening in certain jails, but it's almost impossible for him to get prison systems to open up to um, engaging and inviting this type of program into their jail or prison. Um, because it can't happen unless the culture of the prison changes. You can't have the same kind of mentality, uh, punitive mentality that you have in su being suspect of everybody um, and have the program work. And um, mm. he, he quoted uh, something. He said he had just seen this new movie out called Moneyball. Um, uh, who's the mm. actor in that? He's the one that's married to Angelina Jolie. Um, and he said there was this great quote in the movie, and it made him think of the prison work that he's doing and the prison work in general because people who run prisons, are, they have a particular box very frequently, uh, most frequently, through which a uh, particular lens through which they see the culture. And he says, this was the quote from, from the movie, anytime somebody does something that is radically outside the box and it works beautifully, you can expect to be attacked, ridiculed, and undermined. Mm. Now that, it, that speaks to restorative justice. It speaks to a program like his. A person can go into into teach a Houses of Healing course, but they're not asking the whole culture to change. You're still in a very dehumanizing culture. But hopefully the, the inmates can, not, not when you're inside the class, but once you walk outside the class, that the inmates can take responsibility for their own perceptions and how they react to it. And, and hopefully, you know, as I always say in the courses, this expression I use, life is like a stone mill. It'll either grind you down or it will polish you up, in which it does is ultimately up to you. And that is really true in the prison system. When you are in there, you will either get ground down, get angry, more shameful, um, be you know just profoundly impacted in a negative way, or you'll get polished up. And the truth is, you, there's no neutral ground. You're going in one direction or another while you're in there. And so, to really embrace your own personal growth when you're in there and in your own healing. 
um, um, it, help it, you, then you're using it as an opportunity to polish yourself up so that you have the internal, at least some of the internalized um, um, perspectives and ex direct experience that you need to be successful, whether you're in there or you're out of there. Um, and so anyway, the, the, uh, the, in a way, the criminal justice system is really designed to weed really compassionate and um, uh, transformative experiences out in a way. It, my friend was talking about an assistant warden who had a very meaningful interchange with uh, in a, a young inmate. And he had said to the young inmate, uh, this was in, I don't know if the person was transitioning from uh, the young inmate, was going somewhere and the warden had gotten into a conversation. And he said, being here, uh, being here with you in this conversation has been a valuable experience for me. And my friend was saying how if um, many um, um, employees of a prison system, if they heard that kind of recognition to a young inmate, would actually, uh, you know, kind of put the, uh, that assistant warden down for that kind of interaction. Because it, it, they really uh, oftentimes feel a need and are conditioned um, to treat somebody, to treat the, the inmates like they're nobody. And any any uh, right. any somebody who's a nobody is really it's it's an inhumane system. It, it reminds me, of course, of that well-known and loved um, quote, or I'm probably not going to quote it exactly, but the the one from Albert Einstein about the the same the same consciousness that created something, you know. You, um, you know it, right? <laughs> you can't you can't change uh, something from the same consciousness upon which it was created. Right. Right. Uh -huh. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it it appears to be um, a very very much a, a foundationally uh, a consciousness um, paradigm uh, shift that that we're looking at here. Um, that that fundamentally, um, one by one, in these works that we do, precisely um, towards restore, restoring and healing and connecting and and shedding the light, um, while also embracing the lampshade. I would have to say. I mean, I love that quote. Um, mm -hmm. You know that that essentially right. we're we're recognizing the light um, in in each other and mirroring that for um you know for those who are incarcerated um and that's a big a big jump right there just to mm -hmm. even have um those within the system come empowered enough to feel that they can be safe to mirror that for those um who are incarcerated within yes. that system yes absolutely now, Robin, I'm curious, um, again, I, I just want to remind our group tonight, uh, please press 1 if you do have a comment or a question for Robin or just um, for the circle in general. Um, 
we've we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and I know uh, I want to make it really clear that this is this is a, a dialogue circle, including you. Um, but I I I, I want I wanted to just say, Robin, that um, <clears throat> one of the things that came up for me was a curiosity as to your perception of recept receptivity. Um, within the system itself, because I know that you travel a lot, and I know that you've been to many different prisons and have worked with a lot of different um, officials within the system. And I'm just curious to know what your sense of, of receptivity there, and and if there's um, you know a, pl a place uh, where you've seen it, uh, where you've seen significant kind of light shed upon even just one prison. Mm -hmm. um, any particular well, scenarios yeah, or instances? Definitely. Um, one that really comes to mind for me where Houses of Healing had a huge presence, um, I think there must have been like, um, oh, probably at least a couple of hundred, uh, um, if not more, prisoners who had gone through the Houses of Healing course. And it and I did a, a small study there with a colleague of mine, Jenny Phillips, um, in in Alabama, in this uh, this prison that really had a national reputation of being one of the most violent prisons in the United States. And she had uh, come across uh, the film "Doing Time, Doing Vipassana." I don't know if you ever saw that. It's a film about a 10-day meditation retreat that was done in this. Um, they call it a jail. We would certainly look at it as a prison in, in India, and she was so inspired by it that she said, oh, my gosh, let's see if we can get this 10-day retreat into this Donaldson Correctional Facility. And so basically we wow. went to the commissioner and said, you know, we see, see this as being kind of the logical next step for Houses of Healing. And, and what happened was um, they, they hosted th – this was an incredible – like feet, and a lot of it also had to do with Jenny's persistence and vision. Um, that um, this 10-day Vipassana retreat, where inmates were totally isolated from the rest of the population, um, their food was cooked separately for them by volunteers. I mean, it was incredible, um, incredible that the that, that the prison system supported this. Uh, actually had this 10-day meditation retreat, and now they continue to do this in um, in Alabama. They have these 10-day Vipassana retreats. In fact, there's a documentary. I, it, people can um, just Google it. It's called Dhamma Brothers, and it's all about the 10-day retreat in, in Alabama. Uh -huh. So that was something that came out of it that even went beyond uh, houses of healing, especially for these inmates that were going to, um, um, you know, many of them are going to spend the rest of their lives there. You know, they're never getting out. And for them to really be able to use that time in prison like a, um, a monastery for themselves in a way and really mm -hmm. just polish up their practice and engage them in a deep meditation practice so that they can, uh, as the title of uh, Jarvis Masters, an uh, inmate on death row in California, who wrote a book about his own meditation experience. He called it Finding Freedom. 
and mm-hmm. that really the the goal is how can you find freedom even behind bars. I love that. That's that just um, it reminds me a bit of of Leonard Peltier's book, My Life Is My Sundance, and mm. um, the, I believe some of the 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 mentions he makes within that that book of of that very thing that really prison ultimately is um a metaphor and even those who are not behind a literal wall or or bars um get to look at that in in their daily lives we all do and right. so when we look at that more closely you know and that that that's a deep that's a deeper uh uncovering of um of the depths of this journey that um, whether we're behind bars or not, that we're all on. Um, and I just, uh, it, it's fascinating to me to think, to think of, of what that means. And I, and it links back for me back to the essence of, um, of wholeness that, you know, that, 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 that we're really all of us, whether we're imprisoned or not, are, are, wishing for ourselves that wholeness whether we are conscious of it or not that 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 core self that essence is so deeply wanting to be heard seen and lived out into the world that um if we can do that and turn this system into a place where we're doing that i i hope to see that in my lifetime i know that i'm sure you do as well Absolutely, and what you're saying is so, you know, I, I feel so right on, Molly, that really, uh, you know, in a way, uh, you know, I'm not uh, encouraging the uh, people that are incarcerated to do anything that we don't all need to do if we want to be free. Right. <laughs> this, is, right. this is just, it's just that I felt called to respond to this population. Right. It wasn't like... You know, uh, it could be to any population, right? And exactly. and it's a and ultimately it's a product of my own journey. Mm. Well, on that note, you know, Robin, I I want to pause again because uh, we've jour- again journeyed so deeply tonight together, and we have a wonderful group. I I, I even recognize quite a few names. Is there anyone that would like to? to make a comment or pose a question. We're getting close to closing time here tonight. So, again, press 1 on your keypad if you would like to do that. And um, while we're, we're letting the juices flow there, I just would like to say um, the Lionheart Foundation, again, um, their website is www.lionheart.com. Dot org. That's lionheart.org, and you can find um, Houses of Healing and the other books as well, right, Robin? Yes. Um, mm-hmm. are, are there, and a great wealth of resources. And it looks like we do have a couple, couple questions or comments, so let me sure. go ahead and open great. up the line. Um, Christina, go ahead. Hi, Christina. I was looking at some news reports about some prisoners in, I think it was Los Angeles or in California, where they're on a hunger strike, um, uh, over a 10-day hunger strike, and they are 
wanting um, better conditions for themselves. Um, some people have been in solitary confinement for 20 years or so and making simple demands like winter clothes for those people that are in solitary confinement. I was wondering if um, you were involved in any programs out there in uh, that area. Um, their, uh, Houses of Healing is used in a number of California prisons. And one of the things I'm really uh, delighted to say is that there are uh, more and more prisons out there uh, that are allowing some of the um, the prisoners to facilitate the program. And there's such a wealth of um, richness in the prison population, people who have been around for a long time, that have really matured in the system, that have so much to offer, that are incredible role models. And they're allowing some of these people to to facilitate the program themselves. So I'm delighted about that. And, but it is, it is in a number of uh, state prisons. I don't know about, uh, I know the Marin County Jail, but that, that was facilitated by chaplains. And, and chaplains are often a group that really um, uh, are attracted to houses of healing. It's not a religious program, but it is a, it, it certainly has a spiritual roots, and so chaplains that are open, that aren't like kind of fundamentalist in their view, are very receptive and, and facilitate the program as well. well. That's a great question, too. The, 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 um, that hunger strike has really had my interest as well, and, mm -hmm. and I was wondering where it, it, it had gone. <laughs> Um, it seemed mm -hmm. like it, the you know the we know that the the mainstream media doesn't always cover certain mm -hmm. things that are really going to the root of where change n needs to happen as well yes. as is happening, and there's voices uprising. And um, so, uh, Christina, do you know um, what the status is? It, it, it's it's now. Where is it at now? Yeah, I don't know where it is now. I know that there's advocacy groups um, kind of mediating or helping to get their message out. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. if restorative justice has breached that at all of um, about the systemic, um, from the systemic point of view. Um, uh, I think that that that. that um, there's just such fundamental needs for change mm. uh, that, um, you know, it's like taking it out of, uh, it's really like the dark ages to a place where people are getting basic needs met and mm. some fundamental civility. I mean, it's kind of like a long ways from a more evolutionary view of restorative justice. That's why I say there are small pockets of it, but to think that people have to, and I really applaud the, the, the prisoners who have the courage, um, and too often, unfortunately, they, they're brought to such a place of desperation and hopelessness that they feel like they have to go on a hunger strike to get such basic needs mm -hmm. met. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Christina, so much for, for being thank you, Christina. with us tonight and um, adding your presence and for your work in restorative justice as well. I happen to, to know that you have done some deep work yourself, and thank you so much. Um, 
And Robin, are you are you okay with just a, uh, another question or two? Sure. Um, I know we're running a little bit over here, but Absolutely. there's another hand up. Okay. Go ahead, Melanie. Thank you. Um, uh, please forgive me. Uh, I have such a passion for restorative justice and and uh, con conflict resolution and uh, trauma resolution. And um, I I got on the call late. Um, so I'll just ask quickly, did, did, did you speak about um, uh, Dominic Barter and how restorative justice came into being? And uh, do you know about Judge Peterson's work with um, just the civilian population, you know, in family court and the restorative circles? I have a little awareness, uh, Melanie, as I, as I said earlier, uh, at the beginning that I would really address the kind of the domain where I have most um, most of my experience, which is really with the um, helping the pe helping people in prison to mm -hmm. um, be able to um, grow and heal and become restored within themselves so that they can really take ownership of their crimes and be able to um, you know, have much more awareness of the, the impact of what they do and discover that part of themselves that doesn't ever want to repeat it again by virtue of the maturity and emotional competency that they've come to uh, themselves. So, but I did not speak to Dominic Batter or Judge Peterson. And did you know about that? Uh, I know something about family courts, but I personally, I'd be delighted if you want to say some uh, something about that. No, no, I've been I've been uh, chasing after information. I, I've talked to Judge Peterson and uh, he, he and the work that he did in his courtroom in Minneapolis, but. Um, um, Really, I know that you're running late. Is, is there a way that I can be in, in touch, Molly, with um, with these two people? I'd really appreciate it. I've been um, trying to create a, a, a restorative circle. I know it's a very, very broad um, <laughs> piece of work with the restorative justice. And yes, it a is. Lot of That's right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'd be so grateful. This is the closest I've gotten to mm -hmm. um, to, to to anybody that's, that 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 can perhaps give me leads to. Um, you know, one of the people um, I I think he's at the University of Minnesota is Mark Umbright, who's written a lot about restorative justice. And Mark Albright. Umbright, U M B R E I T, I believe. He's written about restorative justice. So much happening in Minneapolis, in Minnesota, yes. with restorative justice. If it, you know, he might be a good lead for you if you can contact him through the university to maybe, um, if if these others are high profile, he might be able to lead you to them. And I, I would also add um, that restorative justice online, RJ online. Dot, I believe it's .com or it might be .org, but I'm pretty sure it's RJ Online, Restorative Justice Online. If you Google that, um, I've noticed I've been doing a little background work on some resources as well, Melanie. Um, so you might check out, they have a blog, they have a library of um, papers, 
and um, they do have a list of active groups nationwide. And I do quite a bit myself of uh, networking in social media, and I've noticed them online as a great resource, as well as the Peace and Collaborative Development Network, which is PCDN Network on um, Twitter. And if, if you Google PCDN Network, and also, again, RJ Online, um, you'll probably find a nice wealth of information. But, of course, you can also um, go to lionheart.org for, for the wealth of resources and, and, and body of work that Robin has and, and her team have so devoted their lives to. Um, so I, I, I feel like we're at a great place here to just say, um, get, just have a, a, a brief closing and Robin, I'm just so grateful to you for your your life of, of service and work specific to this field. To me, you you represent um, a pilgrim of some sorts, a, a way shower, a bridge builder for for the rest of us to follow. And I'm deeply honored that um, you took the time to to spend with us tonight in this circle. And I, finally, I would just like to say to everyone, if you're moved to um, support the Lionheart Foundation and, and perhaps even to, to stay in touch with, with the Lionheart Foundation, please, uh, I'll be sending out an email to everyone on the call tonight, um, just inviting if you'd like to stay in touch with Lionheart. And also, um, you're warmly welcomed to make any kind of contribution that your heart is moved to make towards their great works. Uh, and you can do all of that at lionheart.org. Finally, I will have um, a recording of this dialogue and forum tonight on my website at mollyrowanpresents.com. And we'll be sharing this with Robin as well, of course, and the Lionheart Foundation for, for however they would like to use it. So. Um, you can find out more information, too, about this ongoing restorative justice and social healing series. Next week's guest will be Katie Gilbert of Stories of Our City. She's based out of Beirut, and her focus is on sharing storytelling with um, – that her focus is storytelling as a means for social healing – when we listen deeply, when we tell our stories, and we take the time to do that, it changes us profoundly. So, Robin, again, um, any closing comments or anything else you'd like to say before we... Well, I just want to thank tonight? you so much for creating this forum, Molly, and thank everybody that's uh, called in this evening. I, you know, I, I hope that it's been helpful and or informative in some way, and I'm just very grateful to you to create a a forum like this, and um, and I just thank you from the bottom of my heart. Mm, likewise, Robin, <laughs> and, and to everyone, have a, a great evening, and look forward to seeing you next week, and we'll be in touch. Good night, all. You are currently the only person in this conference.